Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and mentorship. So check it out at tkex.org. I'm joined today by Gabrielle Fundera. She's a former assistant professor of exercise science, holds a PhD in human nutrition, foods, and exercise. She's an ACE certified health coach with both Monash Low FODMAP and ISSN sport nutritionist certifications. She's got so many certifications, I'm having trouble saying them all. So Gabrielle, thank you so much for making the time for us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, and I, I always appreciate, you know, having the platform to, to speak about these things. Amazing. Amazing. So keen to dive into some of the, the nuances of dieting today and a bit of behavior change in coaching. But first and foremost, for those who've been living under a rock and don't know you, Gabriel, what's your story? Uh, oh gosh. Um, well, I guess the, the shortened version of it is that I have a background in exercise science. So my bachelor's was exercise, sport and health ed. And once upon a time over a decade ago, I wanted to own a gym. And then I realized that that wasn't actually what I wanted. I sort of wanted the human interaction that would come with owning and running a gym. And so I transitioned to, um, work toward being a professor because I realized that I really had a passion and a love for, for teaching, educating, and really um, empowering others with knowledge. And so I went right from bachelor's to PhD and I earned my PhD um, at Virginia Tech in human nutrition, foods, and exercise. And it was sort of just a, a serendipitous event that I ended up studying the gut microbiome. Um, and human metabolism, because I really intended to study skeletal muscle physiology specifically. And after four years of teaching and exercise science, I was able to um, resign and transition to coaching full-time, because I had started with Renaissance periodization about a year prior. And uh, I, I just found that to be so incredibly fulfilling um, and rewarding and um, I have, over the past few years, started my own business, Vitamin PhD Nutrition, and I provide telehealth. And then, yeah, in the past, you know, better part of a year, um, working on the Bridging the Gap content with Shannon and, and more recently, Dan as well. So it's been just sort of a wonderful journey, um, an iterative process, as we like to say with the Bridging the Gap stuff. And um, I'm just here to learn and help to kind of like translate what we find to be um, best practices and, and help coaches help their clients. Amazing. I love the, the love for the human interactions that is so pertinent to the coaching role and loving the content that you guys are putting out and, and that we're trying to change the industry in a way forward to try and make it very much more person-centered versus coach or practitioner-centered. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, I think that that shift has been occurring for some time um, in various uh, groups, I think. I, I don't want to say sex. That sounds sort of weird. But, you know, there are groups of of practitioners that I think really embody that client-centered approach. Um, and obviously, it's been something that's been in the works in sort of the therapeutic community since the mid-1970s, you know, with the kind of the emergence of, of motivational interviewing and probably even before that, you know, sort of Rogerian styles of therapies, which are, are much more client-centered and even, and even to some extent client-led. Of course, when you get into the realm of coaching 
or allied health where we do have to sometimes have a more prescriptive approach it can be a little bit difficult i think to find that balance um, of keeping things client-centered while also sometimes needing to you know provide information or treatment programs and so we are trying to you know sort of bridge that gap between clients and practitioners, and then also practitioners within the industry that might have different ideologies and different approaches, and sometimes can be a little bit dogmatic. And maybe, you know, we, we see conflicts arising from that. And really, I think the best way for us to help raise the entire industry is, you know, to approach each other and our clients with empathy, compassion, understanding, and, and, you know, sort of the, the skills of active listening and engagement so that you can have more productive conversations in, in either direction. It's, it's a keeping the, the spirit of, we say, motivational interviewing where we're respecting the person's autonomy first and foremost. And I feel like a lot of some of the, the rules are dogmatic principles in the dieting world perhaps take us further and further away from that spirit we're being client-centered. So a common one is the calories in, calories out protocol. And, and I guess there's lots of caveats to this. If we were all living in a, in a bubble and, and you know, there's less of the other interactive effects, maybe yes, this principle does uh, definitely play a role. However, what are some of the, the nuances? Why is it not just you know, eat less, move more? Hmm. You know, I think... I think I want to take an approach of that it's not not that, but it's that and. Um, there's a, a conversation I recently had um, just yesterday with Dan and, and Shannon that this little kind of nugget just just came up sporadically, just just out of nowhere. But you know, we were talking about the way that people sort of view things in the industry as as black or white. It has to be health or fit, uh, or uh, fitness, or it has to be you know health or physique. Uh, has to be calories in, calories out, or, you know, a weight neutral approach. And it is calories in versus calories out, and all of the things that influence both our energy expenditure and our energy intake. And I just made a post this morning or last night, it was last night, uh, about taking a more comprehensive view of energy balance. And that, yes, it is a factual statement to say that the law of thermodynamics dictates the energy storage of the body. So if we take in more calories than we need at a given time, we will store that energy. And it might be that we're storing glycogen, it might be that we're storing body fat. And then if we are in a deficit, obviously we're going to be expending more energy, more calories, and then we will have a net loss of muscle glycogen and body fat. But I think taking such a reductionist approach really invalidates people's individual experiences. And while we need to provide that information, if someone maybe has a misunderstanding about energy balance, but that has to be done, I think, with the, the spirit of MI. And it has to be done, I think, in an MI consistent manner, which would be with the client's permission. Yeah, I don't, I, I think everyone can agree that like no one really likes unsolicited advice. And that even if a client is coming you, to you for information, generally speaking, it's much more effective long-term to first validate their experience and express empathy, which is a skill 
that's separate that's separate from just experiencing the empathy so that you show that you understand where they're coming from and then you can provide information in a way that empowers them and what i think we often do is we provide information in a way that shames or judges or um, belittles a person you know like we make fun we make fun of people that try different diets we make fun of people who think that ketogenic diets are the number one way to lose fat or that you know um, they need to remove sugar from their diets. And in the past, I mean, even I, I did that, you know, and it's not to shame the people who are doing that because people, I think most of the time have good intentions and they want to educate people maybe in a, a joking manner and things like that. Or, you know, they, they don't, you know, I don't think they have intentions to, to make people feel stupid, but I think that that can happen, you know? And so I think that while we can lean on our knowledge and our expertise in nutrition, um, if, that's where, if that's where it exists, and we can use our knowledge to supplement a person's journey, that they still have to be the agents of change. And they have unique expertise from their past experiences and their preferences. And even in, in their careers and their personal lives, you know, they know themselves better than we ever could. And while they may, you know, benefit again from our information and, and sometimes they might ask for our advice, that's certainly okay. Not to say anything's, you know, black and white wrong, like, it, oh, we can't provide information. Generally, they're going to have the solutions in mind. They either sort of need the permission to trust themselves or they kind of want to brainstorm a little bit and get some feedback on something that they're thinking. And that's where we can have really great collaboration back and forth. If a person has an idea and we say, oh, wow, you know, they can really see where that has worked for you in the past. Can I provide some, some insight or some feedback? And they say, yes, and then we can share. So I think when that's done in an am I consistent manner, it can be really, really effective. And when we look at a person in a comprehensive, more holistic way, we get to the other forms of energy balance. So most of the time people know that it's about calories in versus calories out. What they don't know is how they can effectively and sustainably modify that in a way that allows them to meet their goals. So, so at the end of the day, are they eating because they're bored? Are they really tired and then just don't have the energy to exercise? You know, so those are the things that I think really dictate how energy balance occurs within a person is much more than just eat less and move more. I feel like the myth busting that was needed to get to the stage where it's, you know, just calories in calories out versus we need specific macronutrients or we need specific nutrient timing. Then we get so excited that we bust this myth and we forget that there's a person in front of us that has their own goals and their own kind of intentions and their, their own ways that things that work for them within their context. We need to respect that. So there's probably a, a difference between our messaging on social media and maybe we just need to be more mindful of that. So we don't come across as shaming people that practice in a certain way or, or prefer a certain lifestyle, a certain dieting culture. Maybe that works for them. Maybe they're still reaching their goals and, and through different means. Oh, 100%. I think one of the best examples of, of an MI skill that you can do with or without the spirit gets to, gets to this. And so I'll just, I'll just ask it in two different ways. So you can imagine that you are having a conversation with a client and the client tells you that they want to do keto. And if you 
use an open-ended question. So that's, that doesn't have a yes or no. It's, it's something that will have a, a long answer. Uh, that's considered to be an MI skill. And so you could do this in two different ways. You could do this without the spirit. Oh, how has that worked for you in the past? Or you can do it with the spirit. How has that worked for you in the past? You can feel, you can feel there's a difference. That it's exactly the same question, but one is done with sort of the writing reflex behind it, with I think that keto is wrong. I think that what you've done is wrong, and I think this is a mistake. And I'm going to be, be sly about it and make it look like I'm asking you an open-ended question, but I'm really not, because behind that question is, that didn't work for you. Whereas if we do that with the spirit and we have sincere curiosity, we might find that there were things about keto that really helped that person. Maybe they were eating a lot of vegetables and they really enjoyed that. Or maybe, you know, they liked the food choices. They found it to be sustainable. It was very easy because they didn't feel like they really needed to count things. It just so happened that when they were following the dietary pattern, they reduced their caloric intake. Do we need to have a conversation about calories in versus calories out? Maybe. But first, we really need to set that mutual trust and understanding and that sincere curiosity and hear that person out and then they can let us know what worked for them and maybe they'll they'll say well gosh you know actually i didn't it didn't work i mean i lost weight but i felt really restrictive and i just hated it oh well it sounds like you know you the weight loss was effective that part worked but it didn't feel sustainable to you and they say oh yeah no it, i just i don't think i could keep that up well, okay, well, what are some things that would be sustainable for you? And then you go on from that, you know, so we can do this. It, we, can, we can help people decide what they want to do. We don't have to decide that for them. We don't have to judge them for it. Even if, you know, I, I wouldn't use a ketogenic diet now. And if someone asked me for a recommendation, I really wouldn't recommend it. I would, I would instead say, I would instead ask with curiosity, what has worked for you in the past? Now I know your real intention, Gabriel. You, you can't hide from me if you ever ask me that question. But I love that. It's like we're, we're accepting where they are. And I think that's, that's one of the parts that's missing, that acceptance and compassion for acknowledging that there might be some positives through this. There might be some helpful ways of incorporating some of the principles of the keto diet. As difficult as it might be for us in the evidence-based bubble that we are to see and maybe see all the benefits, the helpful ways that this way of practice or this diet can actually be beneficial because we always you know slam it on social media we forget hey there's a person in their context it's not about us it's about them maybe we can affirm some of the things that they are doing really well right oh absolutely and i love that you said affirm i i really um i think we I was listening to a really wonderful podcast today. It was the, I can't remember, it's a mastery podcast, but um, Steve Rolnick was on it. And he's one of the main researchers in motivational interviewing. And they were talking specifically, you know, he's written a book actually about MI in, with athletes. And so it's coaching athletes to be their best. So if anyone's curious about that, I think it's a really great read. And he talked about the, the comparison, the difference between praise and affirmation. Praise is something that I think that we use a lot in the industry, and it's different from an affirmation. So a praise, and, and not to say that praise is wrong, but it's different. And I think that there's a different place for it, maybe after an affirmation. So praise is something that I would give to a person, that I am proud of that person. And it's something that I do say. So again, I don't think there's anything wrong with praise, but affirmation is highlighting 
a person's strength. You are noticing something about that person that makes them uniquely and exceptionally capable in some specific way. And I think that's one of the things that we overlook, but can be just profoundly impactful in a person's life. And it's one way I think that we can really establish that positive regard and, and help people feel understood and really seen. When we look at a person and they tell us something that they did, and instead of just saying, wow, great job, we say something that, that their actions indicate about their character. You're so dedicated. You're so committed. You're so kind. You're so thoughtful. Those are the things that I think will really help just bolster a person's confidence and self-efficacy and just can be so just useful in, in really creating a rich alliance between a practitioner and, and a client. Finding out the strengths and the, the qualities that that person has that can then be used in a, perhaps a different way because maybe something isn't working and we're still knowing that and they're still seeking us for our expert opinion and advice. So, but there is a nuance to this and this is a skill that is definitely not taught enough. So loving the work that you guys are putting out. I wanted to dive into some of the nuances with dieting and the first starting point will say, what are the, the benefits of, of weight loss? When is it helpful in which particular context and which kind of circumstances? I really love that, that you asked this question. And when I was thinking about it, I first thought very practically about the benefits of the outcome of weight loss, the potential benefits of the outcome of weight loss. And of course, you know, this I think is a contentious topic because especially right now we are, we're, we need to be sensitive to the fact that not all weight loss is associated with health outcomes and that there are individuals with obesity that are already healthy. And so about 30% of individuals with obesity are metabolically healthy individuals. That is, as far as we know, a transient state. So it's not something that's going to last forever, that they are at increased risk of developing a metabolic abnormality. And likewise, not all individuals with a, a normal BMI are metabolically healthy. So the potential benefits of weight loss specifically, I think we could say that there's evidence that it, would, it, it seems to have a dose-specific a dose response in osteoarthritic joint pain. So in individuals with overweight or obesity, if they lose some percent of their body weight, they tend to experience less joint pain. And certainly it would also reduce the risk of eventually developing a metabolic abnormality. But I think what we really overlook when we talk about the benefits of weight loss, we ignore sort of the way that that weight loss was achieved. So I wonder if people would still consider it to be beneficial if a person with overweight or obesity successfully lost 10% of their body weight and, and experienced less joint pain, but they did so through you know, a very restrictive diet or a crash diet. Maybe they only drank cabbage soup for eight weeks. I think most people would say, well, in the context, ah, I don't know about that. So I think really we, need, we could separate weight loss as just an outcome and look at what are the things that people are doing to achieve a change in weight. Are they 
increasing their physical activity? Are they increasing their fruit and vegetable intake? Are they reducing their intake of hyperpalatable foods so that you know their overall dietary pattern becomes more rich in micronutrients? Are they seeking mental health support that allows them to better meet their emotional needs so that they're maybe not turning to food? I would say that the benefits of a lifestyle change that may lead to weight loss, that's really probably worth discussing more than just the benefits of weight loss uh, itself. Because what we really mean when we're talking about the benefits of weight loss, it's not just weight loss at any cost. You know, we want to find sustainable approaches for people to lose weight. And even, you know, when we look at, you know, at Hayes, health at every size, and we look at the statement put out by ASDA, which is the association that actually developed the Hayes approach, at no point do they say that weight loss is bad. And they even have addressed, you know, the idea of like, well, can, you know, are we saying everyone's healthy at every size? No but we're not pathologizing based solely on body size. And we're not idealizing based solely on body size. We are recognizing that a person who is extremely underweight or a person who is extremely overweight or has obesity, that those individuals may not be engaging in a lifestyle that's supportive of health and well-being. But instead of focusing on, we need to change their body weight, we focus on how can we help them change their behaviors or how can we increase their access to resources, both in a direction to improve their health. So we're looking at behaviors and we're looking at policies more so than we're just looking at weight change. And that's a, such an important distinction where we're not lumping them to the both the outcome and the process together because you're right if we get to the outcome but you know the rest of life falls apart then maybe it's not really worth it in that context so loving that we have to look at maybe the health seeking behaviors and that's our priority versus the number on a scale absolutely i couldn't agree more i i, I it's not to say that weight loss or any even intentional weight loss is inherently problematic it's the context in which it occurs. It's why did we pursue that weight loss? And then how did we end up at that outcome? Those are really the predictors of whether intentional weight loss may lead to some disordered eating habits or psychological harm. And let's dive into some of those. So what are the harms and the negative effects of seeking weight loss as an outcome and maybe even touching on diet culture and what are the negative implications and effects? Absolutely. So there are, um, this is actually, so I, I, don't, I won't give too much away because we're going to be talking about this at the, at the webinar this weekend, but um, we've, we've put together a section on mitigating risk and harm. And actually, Eric Helms has put out some really incredible content on this as well, you know, coming from the world of physique sports. There, there may not be uh, a group at greater risk of, uh, of you know, body dysmorphia and disordered eating habits as, as athletes that specifically starve themselves over the span of, of several uh, weeks and months um, to get on stage and have their bodies judged. 
you know, so of course they're going to be hyper vigilant about their body composition and, and their food. So when we look at sort of the, um, the, the context of dieting, generally speaking, if a person is pursuing intentional weight loss for the purposes of improving their health, that seems to uh, be associated with, with a less risk of developing disordered eating habit and is less associated with negative body image as compared to someone who is dieting for the purpose of uh, aesthetic changes, so just physique changes. So that's one thing that we could sort of look at as um, you know, a specific context is the why. Do we have health reasons? Is it purely aesthetic? Not to demonize or idolize either one, but it might be a good idea if maybe we could combine and say, we don't have to have or, we can have and. So let's look at a way that we can meet our aesthetic goals with health in mind. Because really, I mean, we need to consider an individual's longevity uh, and mental and physical and emotional health uh, along this journey. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is the way that we achieve that weight change. Do we use a very rigid restraint approach where we have specific, you know, a black and white approach on off a diet, good and bad foods, and a, a very sort of um, restrictive can't have type of mindset? Or do we have more of a flexible approach? Now, the caveat is with this is that in the literature so far, they, there's so much overlap, they're almost not distinguishable from one another. But the flexible approach, so flexible dietary restraint generally doesn't have those specific rules, but a person will still restrain themselves. So they may still choose not to have a food or they'll choose to eat a certain amount, but it looks like there's, there's likely more autonomy there, less black and white thinking, more iteration and experimentation. So there's less of this like, um, zero sum, you know, oh, if I'm, if I eat this, I fail. It's, if I eat this, maybe I be change something else about my diet going forward. So that's one that also seems to, to mitigate some of the risk of psychological harm and disordered eating patterns is, you know, if a person takes a more flexible approach versus something that's very rigid. So I think those, those two seem to be some of the, the most uh, significant factors. And then also looking at the population, so there are certain characteristics, personality traits like perfectionism um, or grit. Uh, certainly, you know, physique uh, or weight class athletes are at uh, increased risk of developing uh, some form of disordered eating or an eating disorder uh, because of the nature of their sport. Um, and, and disordered eating and eating disorders are currently more prevalent in females, although there's probably a significant underreporting bias, I would say, in males. So all of those factors, I think, really need to be considered when we are assisting a person with intentional weight loss, that it really behooves us to, I think, have a, both parties, client and coach, to have a, a thorough knowledge of the client's background and the context uh, in which they're working to pursue intentional weight loss, just to, you know, we can't, I've used this analogy that, you know, dieting is, uh, it's like a contact sport. So we can't completely remove risks, but we can certainly mitigate them and we can ensure that our client can provide informed consent about whatever approach they, they want to pursue. So if a person wants to get on stage in a physique sport, I think they need to have uh, a really clear understanding and set of expectations about the potential health uh, implications, both physical, psychological, and emotional. 
and know that those are going to be much more significant than say a person who is you know working on it from a health standpoint and maybe wants to drop um, you know some percent of body weight to to feel better um, and reduce their risk of disease and and, potential, and potentially you know reduce joint pain. That's great. I, I'm going to steal that analogy. Dieting is like a contact sport because you're right. We we go into that mindset of you know weight loss that's fine let's let's do it straight into it without asking about the whys the reasons behind it the history of dieting asking if they have heard of the implications or the positive harms associated or the risks involved especially with physique athletes that's not talked about enough so it's great that you guys and eric helms are putting out this content because you're, you're the role models you're leading the charge I love the, the message there. We need more awareness of these issues in, in sports, in especially physique sports. And I think there was a second, there was a second part to your question that I'm thinking of now, and I can't remember. Diet culture? Yes, yes, diet culture. Uh, so diet culture actually, as, as is sort of, I think, talked about and written about, from what I can find, seems to be a fairly recent construct. Um, there are there are not many scholarly articles about diet culture, you know, to to so that we can like point to that and say like, oh, okay, like you know, Rolnick and Miller conceptualized motivational interviewing when they have a clear definition of it. But diet culture came about, um, you know, in recent years. I think it was it was probably most clearly outlined in Christy Harrison's book um, Anti Diet, and I've seen it on a variety of blog posts and um, websites associated with disordered eating and eating disorders. And certainly I think it's something that's colloquially used. You know, when people say diet culture, I think we have um, sort of maybe a nebulous idea about what we mean. But the, the central tenets of diet culture are sort of what Hayes is, is trying to, I think, serve as somewhat of the antidote to, which would be that, you know, we pathologize or idealize certain body types, that we moralize food, that we use exercise as either punishment or a way to earn food. So it's sort of, you know, I think a lot of people who coach for intentional weight loss might feel that they're being lumped into diet culture and understandably feel defensive about it. But when we, when we take a look at some, you know, the, the things that diet culture is, you know, we, we, I think we all stood next to each other, like the, the people who, you know, sell intentional weight loss and like the, the anti-diet people. And we looked at the list, we'd all agree like, oh yeah, those are bad, <laughs> that's, that's bad stuff. You know, no one should do that. We don't need to do that. That's not effective. But because there's such like that there's so much crosstalk and just like mutual shaming of like, you're bad because you tell people to lose weight. And like, you're bad because you tell people they don't have to lose weight. And it's just a complete misunderstanding of, I think, what the actual messages are, which is really, you know, anti-diet is not necessarily anti-weight loss. Anti-diet is anti-focusing on intentional weight loss like it's a behavior or judging people based on their appearance, or moralizing food so that people feel bad if they eat a donut. You know, that's what we're trying, that's, I, we, I'm not, I think I'm a part of either camp, probably both camps would say I'm a part of the other camp, but, um, you know, that's what it's really about. And then people who are helping people intentionally lose weight are saying, we don't have to do this 
in a damaging, harmful way that people can intentionally lose weight in a way that is safe and sustainable and aligned with their values and identity. And sometimes we could do it even as a sport for fun. And yes, there are risks involved. And, and so we have a responsibility to keep our clients informed and help to mitigate risk. But the diet culture itself, yes, I, I, could, I think it's safe to say that diet culture as in that construct is shamey and judgy and not effective for creating lasting change. And so those, I think, are, like I said, what most people would agree, like, that stuff is not cool. And like, I don't want to be lumped in as part of that. And we can definitely say that, like, yes, some people are, like the people who are, you know, selling like completely ineffective supplements that are super expensive and making people feel like they're broken and they have to buy it. And like, oh, if you lose weight, you're going to be happy. There's like happiness at the end of that rainbow. Okay, maybe they're part of diet culture and like, they can just do their thing and we can just identify it. But just helping people intentionally lose weight, I would argue is not necessarily the same thing. I think it's, it's like looking at someone who is unaware versus someone who is intentionally ignorant. And it's two different things. Not to say that people in other camp are any of those things. It's just that we can look at a person who just like, oh, you just don't know versus, oh, you know, and you're still seeing the opposite. That's intentional. So most of us are not intentionally trying to harm anyone. It's great. We're focusing on the actual claims and setting those out and the definitions first and foremost versus just straight away attacking and that just leads to straw manning and, and uh, ad hominems and misconceptions and memes that are funny at a stage, but maybe in the long term, I'm not sure if they're really that helpful in all of us moving forward towards a, you know, the person centered profession and the health centered profession, because we're all here to, to help people. And I think that's one of the things that aligns us all. So if we can at least remember our commonalities and, and respect our differences in context. If we're working with physique athletes versus gen pop, general population, and we're outlining, hey, these are the, the claims and let's all help people get towards their goals with the motivational interviewing spirit in mind. And let's all recognize and acknowledge that there are some harms involved in weight loss. Maybe there isn't, I feel like looking at where I am, there's not enough awareness of the harms and the risks involved. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just taking responsibility and being conscientious and practicing, you know, integrity, I think just, you know, doing, doing the right thing when no one's looking, just trying to, to do your best and yeah, treat people with, with understanding and compassion and empathy. I think that's, I don't know that that's ever really going to be an ineffective way of interacting with someone. And at the very least, even if the person is not ready to receive that, that's okay. I mean, because you have still done something that you feel is a best version of you. Love it. Wanted to now dive into my favorite topic, coaching. And what is your definition of coaching? And what does that process involve? when working with a client? I would say, because I was trying to think of a good definition, and, and I think that coaching is helping people do the thing they want to do. 
and sometimes it's helping people figure out the thing that they want to do. Because <laughs> I think quite often people think that they have a specific outcome in mind. And quite often, you know, it's, it's weight loss. It's they want to look a certain way. And there's a belief because it's quite often, I think, sold to us or marketed to us that happiness and fulfillment are at the end of this. They're at the finish line waiting for us. And I think it's sort of unfortunate that people wait. You know, they, they kind of put things on hold until they reach that point because they feel that the weight loss, the aesthetic changes kind of have to come first before they can do the things that they want to do. And so when I say that coaches help people do the things that they want to do, I really think that that can be sort of all encompassing. That when a person is provided a judgment-free, shame-free place where they feel that they are seen and understood and fully accepted and they have true belonging there, and they really experience unconditional positive regard, based on a, especially based on a recent conversation I had with a client who hadn't really experienced that before, that they feel that they can live their lives more authentically and with greater abundance, even right now, even on the way to whatever the finish line might be. And I think that's really, you know, different, I'm sure different coaches have different goals for themselves and for their clients. But to me, that's really why I got into this. Because I saw that there was, oh, I, at first I thought maybe there was like a dissatisfaction. You know, people have sort of a dissatisfaction and they'll feel more satisfied when they, you know, reach their aesthetic goals. But really, I mean, I think to some level it's it's sort of a suffering. It's a stifling that, that people experience when they really feel stuck and when they you know, have these beliefs about themselves that they limit themselves and they limit their lives because they're waiting to, you know, reach their aesthetic goal. So I just find it very fulfilling and rewarding. And I'm very grateful that I can help people just live more abundant lives right now. And as far as the process, again, not to give too much away because we'll, <laughs> we, we are actually going to be releasing a new um, comprehensive co coach work framework. Uh, comprehensive coaching framework, um, a new process that, that we've sort of streamlined things, I think, and made them more cohesive and made them make a bit more sense after some really helpful discussions with a, a sports psychologist and um, sort of going back into the literature. But I think that the first step would be to establish rapport. So you establish shared understanding and mutual trust. And you do that through the skills of active listening so you first listen to understand with sincere curiosity, with unconditional positive regards. You have no judgment about what the person is telling you and with empathy. So you can express that you understand that person's world while they're speaking to you. And so you build this foundation, this very strong foundation upon which people can rest heavy topics. Because quite often when you're talking about things like food relationships or pain, people are struggling. And so they need to feel safe and comfortable sharing, sharing with you and being candid with you. From there, once you've really established that rapport and you've engaged with that person, now you can start talking about the changes that they want to make. 
and I think one key point about about MI is that it's not a way to get people to change. It's just a way to talk about change. And it's a way to help people strengthen their own motivation for and own commitment to making the change that they want to make, not the change that you think they should make. And you do that through skillful questioning and reflecting the specific things they say about what they want to change and why, and affirming the strengths and the innate capacity that they have for change. And once you've done that, then you can get to a place of planning for change. So once you've really engaged with them, you have that mutual trust and a strong alliance, and they know that this is a collaboration, you've determined what change they want to make and why they want to make it, why it's so important, then you start talking about how are we actually going to implement this change. And then over the course of them, of them making that change, it's an iterative process. That means there's a lot of experimentation. We might change things along the way and we might have course corrections and there's constant feedback and constant collaboration to overcome new obstacles, whether they're internal or external. And then once you meet a goal or a sub goal, you celebrate and you affirm all of the great characteristics about that person that brought them to that place and that you, you help guide them there and you supplement what they're doing because you have a unique set of expertise, but you also call on them and their expertise because you haven't lived their, their lives for the past 30 or 50 years. And you have to really, I think, relinquish some of the control that, that so many of us want as coaches. You know, we want to fix things, we wanna have solutions. Maybe we have some fear that if we don't have a solution, like what is this client paying for? They're paying for a place to have a conversation with you and they're paying for you to be able to evoke <laughs> that change from them that they have the innate capacity for. Now, this isn't a panacea. It's not to say that this process is going to work for everyone in every case. MI isn't something that's appropriate in every case. Some people are very, uh, they've decided that they're not going to make a change and that's okay. You still can, you know, if you have someone that's referred to you, for example, or you have someone who's come to you and they said that they, they want to make a change, but there are a lot of sub changes that they don't want to make that might be need to, that might need to be made before they can, you know, make that final change, that you still have to just give them the space and the acceptance, the non judgment and the positive regard and validate their lack of readiness for change. Say, that's okay. I'm gonna meet you where you are. We'll do, we will move at a pace that you're comfortable with because otherwise we're not gonna move at all. There's no pushing someone into making change. There's no bullying, persuading. It might work short term that we can have some external motivators for change that you know people might do something out of fear of shame or guilt but that doesn't last. And most of the time, you know, those clients will have just really damaging experiences and then most likely move on to, you know, a different coach or a different service. So that's kind of the, the overview of the approach that I take. So not to say that it's the, the right one or the best one, but it seems to be the one that I feel is most authentic to me um, and, and helps the type of clients that, that come to work with me. You can hear the ACT principles in there, acceptance commitment therapy, and getting people towards what they value. 
regardless or despite their current situation. And, and that's super important. So what's most important and who is most important to them in their lives. And then the motivational interviewing process from whether or not they are ready. And if, if they're not ready, we're still there with them. We're providing that compassion and respecting their autonomy in the process so that if they are ready in the future, they can always refer back and when they are ready, go back into that process. So love that, Gabriel. And I, I could talk for hours on this topic, but I wanted to, to finish off with the final question that we have today. It's how do people learn? It's an open-ended, broad question for you. Yeah, I know. And I thought this was so interesting. And it's funny because when I was um, still in grad school and I knew that I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to be a professor from about 20. And so I did, I was a graduate teaching assistant every semester and I just soaked up as much knowledge as I could. I did a graduate certificate and preparing the future professoriate. And then my third year, um, they started a graduate fellowship called the, the Graduate Teaching Scholars. And I was the, I was in the first group of students to go in and I was the first graduate. I actually, they, they let me go in for two years instead of three. And I, I just had to, I had to complete all the requirements in two years instead of three. So I was like, I'm for it, you know? And so, so there was, you know, we learned about how to teach and we learned about all the theories about how people learn. And so, so if you ask, how do people learn? I think it depends on, uh, you know, the answer depends on, on, you know, which psychologist you're asking, <laughs> you know, is it people learn because you reward them for doing the right thing or people learn because you punish them for doing the wrong thing, or they learn by being in groups of other people and learning from them. And I think because we're talking about, you know, coaching and, and behavior change, I think maybe um, another version of this question is, you know, how do people learn and then how do people do or why do people do? And one of the early models of motivation that I learned about came from Virginia Tech and it was the music model of motivation. And it really, it really struck me because up to that point, you know, I think I had long been sort of externally motivated by the fear of, um, you know, uh, retribution if I were to get something less than an A or a B on my report card. And it was effective. It was effective. I got really good grades, but the long-term effects of that lasted in, into adulthood. And I, I had sort of, you know, I dealt with imposter syndrome and perfectionism and things like that. And so I really wanted to, I wanted to determine sort of the best ways that I could help motivate my students to learn in a way that, you know, helps them enjoy the process of learning. I wanted to help them learn how to learn. And the music model of motivation, um, M is for meaning. So a person has to think that whatever they're doing is meaningful to them. U, it has to be useful to them. So there has to be some utility to it. S, they have to feel that they will succeed. So there has to be some level of self-efficacy there, uh, situational self-confidence. I think that I can probably do this. I, there has to be some interest, so they have to be, you know, they find it's compelling in some way. And then C was the one that really got me. They have to know that you care. So I think that that's one element that might be sort of missing, especially, you know, if we have kind of this like tough love approach to coaching where, oh, it's not my job to motivate you and like no pain, no gain, no excuses, that it could be, it, not to say that it's not effective, it could still be effective, 
but I think probably when we're talking about a long-term approach to lasting behavior change, I think care is very important. So I think that people learn through a variety of mechanisms. There's probably trial and error. You know, if we're talking about like brain regions, there's a whole, you know, neuro neurophysiology to it. But, um, you know, the way that people learn, I think has to do with having an experience taking time to reflect on it, hopefully with without judgment, but just observation and in evaluation to determine whether the outcome was useful for them. Um, and then going back to the drawing board and trying again. And then I think they learn most effectively when they are given the space to make mistakes and to change course. That I, I can say that, you know, from my experience as a student and even as a teacher, because I certainly made mistakes while I was teaching, that people tend to shut down and are too afraid to experiment and iterate if there's just a pass or fail. You know, they need to have the room to experiment and grow and learn and try something new. And that's why I think that, that it's so important that we have that approach with clients too, that we can say, oh, you wanna try keto? How has that worked for you in the past? Oh, okay. Let's try it and then see how it goes. That's great. We're empowering them to make their own decisions in, in their journey because it's, it's their journey, not ours. Love that. It's combining all the, the principles that we've talked about to get people to where they want to be. Gabrielle, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor. I've learned a ton myself through this conversation. So thank you so much for sharing your time. And for those who want to hear more about you and, and your project, Bridging the Gap, where can they find you and, and what's coming up for you? Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I mean, this was really lovely. I, I just, your questions were so great, so thoughtful. So if people want to check me out, I am um, at Vitamin PhD. That's on Instagram and Facebook. My website is vitaminphdnutrition.com. We also have, so I, I've been collaborating with Shannon Beer and Dan Feldman. Um, Shannon Beer is at uh, Shannon Beer underscore and uh, Dan Feldman is powerlifter dietitian, both on Instagram and our Bridging the Gap project <laughs> uh, started off as a series of four articles. Now we have five because we received a letter to the editor and we responded to that. So we have a series of articles that work to really establish clearer definitions and understanding of some of these contentious topics in the industry so we can help to bridge the gap really between um, practitioners and then practitioners and their clients. And then we also conceptualized the comprehensive coaching framework, which is a, a conscientious approach to coaching that helps us to evoke lasting change in clients really from the inside out, from the bottom up. So working with their, their beliefs, uh, their values and their identities and their strengths and helping them to identify those and then use them as tools and motivators in their lifestyle change journey. And our, and our outcome to that really is beyond just physical health, but flourishing health so that they can live more abundant lives. And certainly food and physical activity are two aspects of that, but we don't promote those at the expense of the other facets of, of health. Love it, ticks all my biases, Gabriel. Thank you so much for, for your time and 
I can say personally, you are one of my role models out there. So keep up the great work and really appreciate it until next time. Thank you so much. That was great.